Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're in Revelation chapter 19. The past two weeks, um, 18 and 17, we've been reading about the fall of Babylon. Babylon is a symbol, and it is a symbol of human exaltation. It's a city, but it's more than a city. And in chapter 17 and 18, we saw that at the end of the world, there is a Babylon, but that Babylon is just a symbol of all of the Babylons everywhere on planet Earth. It has infiltrated everything. And this system of human exaltation looks most like a prostitute who is inviting all of the people of the world to come and buy what she's selling, to defile themselves with what she is all about. But as we learned last week in 18, all the Babylons that have creeped up throughout history have all suffered the same conclusion, and that is they all fall. They all are humbled under the power of God. So we pick up this morning in Revelation 19. And 19 is split into two major sections. The first half of 19 is a praise chorus that belongs with the end of 18, but it's an interesting transition into the rest of the book, and that's why we didn't read it last week. It technically goes with the end of 18 because it is a worship song about the fall of Babylon, but it is an interesting setup to the second half of 19 because it is a worship chorus that grows into a great roar and a vision of the second coming of Jesus. Today's an exciting day because Jesus is coming back. And we know from what we've been studying all the way back to Revelation 14, 14 through 20, that the return of the Lord comes in two parts. And what I mean by that is his second coming has, from Revelation 14, two harvests. When he shows up, there is a gathering of his people, and there is also a great destruction at the Battle of Armageddon. It's not the only destruction. There's also seven bowls of wrath that are poured out at his return, but this is how the Bible is asking us to see this through the vision. When the last trumpet blows, the skies open up, the temple is seen, and angels are released, and the Lord starts returning, and two things happen. The Lord gathers his church, and wrath is poured out on the wicked. As wrath is poured out on the wicked, the wicked resent the Lord for what he's doing to the earth because they won't humble themselves and serve him. They resent him and they gather together for a final war because they're convinced that they can beat him. So they meet at this mountain for this battle called Armageddon. And that's where we pick up today. The nations are gathered for war, thinking they can conquer the lamb, 
and the lamb is on his way to this war, followed by a great army of heaven riding on white horses. Are you ready? Let's pick up with the worship chorus. Revelation 19, starting in verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude crying out. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen and hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now let's pause there. As I said, 19 is on the heels of 18, which is the destruction of Babylon. So the destruction of Babylon, which takes place during the seven bowls of wrath being poured out, when the great systems of this world are brought to economic ruin, when all of the human exaltation is finally laying in the sand somewhere in a desolate place, smoldering and burning, filled with ash, an eruption of worship takes place. We see the 24 elders and the four living creatures are part of this worship. But the reference to salvation and avenging reveals that they aren't the only ones singing. This great multitude also includes believers who have died throughout church history. Old Testament, New Testament, and those who gave their life during a great tribulation and were killed by the beast. Because we're told that when you die, you're in the presence of the Lord, and so those who had died during this period are in the presence of the Lord, and they're singing, top of their lungs, praise Jesus, hallelujah, because the king is on his way. He doesn't ignore sin and let it go unchecked. He doesn't let his people be abused and murdered. He's coming back for justice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah that the great nations of this world who think that they will not have a day of accountability will have to stand before a holy God and give account for all of the corrupt backroom deals that they created in order to advance their own personal agenda. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That all of the corrupt systems, not just in a government, but all throughout the ages that have perpetrated in systems and organizations, every ounce 
of immorality will have to stand before a holy God and be judged. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This great multitude is the angelic host and believers in heaven, and this great multitude has a front row seat and the clearest perspective in history. See, from earth, Babylon is seductive. But from heaven, she's repulsive. From earth, Babylon and the systems of this world are praised. Who is like that woman? Who is like that great city? It's never gonna fall. Who is like her? She is amazing, but from heaven, She's despised, she's disgusting. She's seen for who she really is, a great prostitute, not a woman of luxury. So the encouragement from just the first five verses is for us as a church and for the first century church to adopt heaven's view, not earth's view. It is so easy to believe Earth's view about the human exaltation of this world because it's enticing. Buy this thing, you'll feel better about yourself. Move here, take this. Tread on this person so you can get ahead. The ends justify the means, just do it. We lie to ourselves, we convince ourselves that this is exactly what the Lord wants for us when it's the opposite of what he wants for us. There's two perspectives. You can trust earth's view or you can trust heaven's view and heaven's view is always right because heaven's view is the only view that knows that God is the only one who sees clearly in every situation, which means that in your current situation, you are not seeing clearly. There is only one perspective that sees clearly, and that is his perspective. And our desire should be, God, I think I see clearly, and I think I know right, but I need you to open my eyes because I'm prone to wander and prone to blindness. How does he do that? Well, he does it in his word. He shows you how to see clearly in his word. Heaven's perspective, this great multitude is standing up here and they're worshiping Jesus and the invitation for us is I gotta see things from their perspective. And so I start praying prayers like Jesus. I worship you as the only one who sees me and this moment clearly. I don't know myself as clearly and as well as I think I do so I've gotta trust your perspective and not mine. And so whatever you say in your word, I will do because I don't trust my own judgment. There's another perspective that is more enlightening and I want that one, Jesus. That's how we start seeing things from heaven's perspective. Trusting his ways and not your ways. His thoughts and not your thoughts. Now let's get into verse six. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, same multitude, 
They erupted into a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. Because angels who are faithful to Yahweh don't accept worship. Angels who are rebellious to Yahweh, they accept worship and we call them demons. This angel said, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, so worship God, not me. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now let's start pulling apart, so we're gonna pause there at six, or at 10, but let's go back up to six. Heaven's worship chorus in the first five erupts into excitement because an event has begun the marriage supper of the lamb. Now this phrase is loaded with Old Testament database imagery. This goes back to Isaiah 25 verses six through eight. Isaiah says, I see the lamb. He doesn't say lamb, but he he sees God redeeming all of his people, bringing them to the Mount of Zion and they are feasting, filling themselves, enjoying a great supper ceremony. The other part of this imagery is not just a feast, but also the imagery of a bride. Now this is deeply rooted in Hebrew culture. Isaiah 62.5, Jeremiah 2.2, Hosea 2.19 through 20. The prophets talk of Israel like God's bride. She's like a woman who has kept herself faithful. She hasn't defiled herself with the things of this world. She's engaged to God He is hers and she belongs to him and he belongs to her. It is a ceremony that eventually one day will be consummated in a marriage, but how do you view God and his people? It is most like a husband and his wife. And that imagery is borrowed into the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 11:2, 2, Ephesians 5, 25 through 32, John 3, 29, where the church is now the bride of Christ. 
In the Old Testament, you saw Israel in that role. In the New Testament, you see the church in that role. And what has not happened is the church has replaced Israel. What has happened is that the church has been grafted in and the bride has always been God's people. The bride is God's people. That's why the imagery is pulled from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we see it in this picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. God's people have prepared themselves to be a pure, holy, virgin bride, not defiling themselves like the whore of Babylon. They are a virgin who is spotless. They have been given white, clean robes by Jesus, and they have kept those robes clean by not defiling themselves with the things of this world. And when he shows up, the bride has made herself ready. So the question, what is the marriage supper of the Lamb? As all things in Revelation, there are multiple interpretations. It certainly happens at the second coming of Jesus because we're about to see the rider on the white horse appear and the uh, pronunciation over the nations is that everyone in heaven is rejoicing because this event has finally come. So it's certainly something that happens at the second coming, but there is a divide within the family on what this actually looks like. Some believe that this is a literal feast that will transpire when Jesus returns. When he comes, he will gather his people and his people will go away to heaven for a period of a thousand years and that thousand years is a millennium of just feasting. It's the marriage supper of the lamb. And then those believers are seen to return, I think it's in Revelation 21, when the great new city comes down adorned like a bride, that like a bride is the people returning back to this new heaven and new earth. That's one view. The other view is a more highly symbolic view. The view is that this isn't a literal meal where we're all sitting down and eating and drinking and enjoying ourselves. It is part of the, sim the symbolism of Jewish culture of the importance of a wedding. It's not an actual feast we're going to or we're gonna eat. It's symbolic of what does the return of Jesus look like? Well, it looks most like a wedding. And a wedding includes lots of celebration and feasting. Now, I think you could probably guess where I fall. I fall into the second camp. I, I don't think that this is a literal sit down uh, and, and meet and uh, uh, everyone's eating and celebrating. I think that the imagery here uh, is for the purposes of us getting a picture in our head of what the second coming of Jesus will look like. I think that when they talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, what they're talking about is the gathering of, a, of God's people to himself. Now, no matter where you fall into this uh, either camp, the picture itself is glorious. No matter how you interpret this, you can't walk away from this picture unchanged. Because what we're looking at here is a clean, spotless church wrapped in righteous clothes. Not a church that sells herself out to politics or to government or to businesses or to become some organization or some self-help club. This is a church who has stayed a church. 
that has given themselves over to God and said, I want you and nothing else. They have not defiled themselves. They have kept their garments clean and undefiled from Babylon. And this vision speaks of the work of Christ, that Christ made this possible by giving the church clean and righteous clothes. And the church, in turn, kept their clothes clean. The righteousness we have, we have because Christ gave it to us. We are clean before a holy God because he declared us clean. Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection power is what made us righteous in the sight of a holy God, and the church chooses to keep herself that way. This is the picture of this vision. Now this section ends with John feeling overwhelmed at this amazing picture, and he bows down in worship to the angel, but the angel corrects him. He says, listen buddy, you don't worship anybody but Jesus. Get up. It's common, especially for John, to be so overwhelmed in some of these visions, to be so caught up in the emotion of the moment to do the wrong thing. But he's always corrected in the moment. He doesn't take offense. He takes the correction and he shifts his focus back where it belongs on Jesus. But the last sentence is what catches my attention. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? What does it mean that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? Well, this comes on the heels of three chapters of the beast and the second beast spreading their dark trinity propaganda through false prophets and fake miracles. And the purpose of false prophets and fake miracles is to get people to worship the beast, not Jesus. Now you've got John bowing down and worshiping an angel. That's pretty close to the kind of stuff that the second beast wants. It doesn't matter who you worship as long as it's not Jesus. So why does the angel give this weird sentence about the spirit of Jesus being the spirit of prophecy? Because at the end of the day, everything you're reading in this book all has one end goal, more Jesus. And the purpose of this sentence is to remind us that every prophetic word, Every song, every sermon, every encouragement, every Bible study, when you sit down to crack open the word in the morning with your cup of coffee and you're studying, the point of all of it is more Jesus. And if it's not, you're doing it wrong. If the purpose of the church gathering on Sunday morning is not Christ and Christ alone, your focus is off because the spirit of prophecy is about the edification of Jesus. That's the whole role of the Holy Spirit, to lift high Jesus, to magnify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at him, look at him, look at him. If you get in a situation where the decisions you're making in your life, the result is people looking at you, you're out of the will of God. If the purpose of the church 
is to edify a person, to stroke someone's ego, to give somebody an opportunity to do something on stage so they can use their talent and everyone can give them a golf clap. Completely missing the point of all of this. If it ain't about Jesus, it's not worth keeping around. Let's go to verse 11. It says, then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 11, this section of the rider on the white horse opens with, I saw heaven opened. Now where have we seen that phrase before? Revelation eleven nineteen, the moment the seventh trumpet blows. Heaven opens. We saw it again in Revelation 15, five, and we see that the heavens opened and the angels released the bowls. This is why I say that all these events, the wrath, the bowls, the return, it all happened simultaneously at the following of the seventh trumpet sound. But what I wanna look at for a moment is the rider on the white horse, because this is Jesus. But this isn't the Jesus you grew up with. This is the Jesus in the coloring book from Children's Church. This isn't the Jesus that we picture. This isn't the Jesus that the nations are trying to belittle and make irrelevant. This is a different Jesus. This Jesus is on a white horse which symbolizes triumph. He's a man ready for war. He is pictured as a divine warrior. He's got eyes of fire. He's got many crowns on his head. He's got authority for judgment. And he's got this name that nobody knows. Most commentators agree that the idea behind having a name that nobody knows means that the name can't be used maliciously because nobody knows it. This is See, name represents character. Name represents who you truly are. And the fact that nobody knows this name speaks to the fact that nobody knows this guy. This is the first time this king 
is, is coming in this form. The first time he rode in on a donkey, but he ain't on a donkey this time. He's on a white horse and his eyes are flaming fire. Nobody knows his name and you can't manipulate, you can't control. He's here to do business and you can't stop it. It's coming whether you like it or not. We're told that his robe is dipped in blood. There is some discrepancy about whose blood this is. Some people think it's his blood. But Isaiah 63, one through six talks about it being his enemy's blood. Well, how can he have his enemy's blood on his robe before he comes to the war? Well, one, it's, it's a vision. This isn't really what he's gonna look like. This is a vision filled with symbols that tell you things about him at his return. And the bloody robe symbolizes his victory in this battle before the battle actually even begins. We see that he's followed by an army of heaven. And some feel like maybe these are just angels, but we were just told in Revelation 19.8 that the saints, his church, have been given fine linen, bright and pure, and then we're told that the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. And if you're just letting the Bible interpret the Bible, what you're looking at is Jesus returning, him raising the dead, those who are still alive are gathered with him in the sky, and then they, they're transformed in the blinking of an eye, and then they follow him to the battle of Armageddon that's not actually gonna be much of a battle. His title is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're told that it's written on his robe and on his thigh. Some people like that Jesus might have a tattoo on his thigh. I don't take issue with that, that seems pretty cool. But the Greek can also read that King of Kings, Lord of Lords is written on his robe that is on his thigh. So you can be the way. If you're, if you're not comfortable with tattoos, there's a way to read it. And if you're pro tattoos, there's another way to read it. But before we go on into 17 and finish this chapter, I want us to consider for a moment the full biblical picture of Jesus. How often do you function in your daily life with this image of Jesus alongside the humble servant, Jesus? See, because it's not one or the other, he's both. He is the humble Jesus who is calling the nations to turn from their wickedness and accept his shed blood as the forgiveness of their sins. And he is also the righteous divine warrior who will do something about those who reject his offer, who exploit his people. He's both. So how often do you consider the full biblical picture of Jesus, and if you did, what would change in your life? What things would become more serious and what things would become less serious when you start praying and picturing Jesus on a white horse with eyes of fire and a sword in his mouth? 
When you pray with that picture of Jesus, I promise most of the things that cause you to wring your hands kind of just disappear. Because if this is the guy who's coming to crush the nations, why are you afraid of that little thing that's occupying the space in your mind? We're supposed to read this and elevate Christ above all other things because frankly, your job doesn't compete with a king who's coming with an army behind him making the payment on that thing, worrying about the salvation of this close friend or family member, stressing about where you're gonna get food from in six months from now, will you able, we'll be able to find gas, for you. how am I gonna get to work? What kind of world is my kid gonna grow up in? I don't know where to send them to school or how to get my, look, you take all of that stuff and you picture in your mind Jesus riding over the top of it. That's how you get through the day. You take every worry, you put it right where it belongs, and you just picture the Lord Jesus Christ coming back right over the top of that with a sword in his mouth declaring, don't worry, I will take care of you. The invitation that John is giving us in this vision is life-changing, and all you have to do is step into it. Let's go to verse 17 and finish the chapter. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Man, that's wild. Just pause for a minute, reflect on how wild that is. An angel standing in the sun. How big does that angel have to be to be standing in the sun? But this angel is standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, ooh. To the, the flesh of captains, Eww. The flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now picture this. The kings of this earth led by the Antichrist are gathered for war and they are convinced they're going to defeat this guy who just returned in the clouds. He has an army following him, sword in his mouth, ready to destroy the wicked, and the enemy is convinced they have a fighting chance. The war is primed. The great final day's war is ready. What's gonna happen? The enemy has mounted its assault. They are ready to fight. They've got every, every weapon they could possibly imagine. They're ready to take on the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He shows up in verse 20. Oh, the beast was captured. <laughs> well, well, that was quick. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who were worshiping its image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. With one word, Jesus ends the battle. He didn't bring any man-made weapons. He just brought his voice, his word, and all he said was, it's finished. And that was it. With those words, all of it comes to an end. Human history ends with Christ saying, it's done. That's it. That's what we are up against when we say, God, I don't want your ways, I want my ways. I'm convinced I can make this thing work and I can rebel and reject and not listen and be disobedient. You are up against a God who literally finishes and starts things by just saying, it's done. Do you have that kind of power? Because if you don't, you should seriously reconsider your options. Because we've got all of the nations of the earth convinced that they can do better and conquer God, and in one word, it ends. But I wanna draw our attention to the contrast that we're given. Because we started this chapter with a great marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a symbol of the union with Jesus, but we finish with the supper of God, which is birds feasting on corpses. And this picture is given to us to consider what banquet do I want to attend? Do you want to give your life to Jesus and be blessed that you join the marriage supper of the Lamb, or would you rather take your chances on your own and join the supper of God and become bird food? Now this isn't the first contrast in this book. Revelation is a book of contrasts and the reason why it's a book of contrasts is because it's designed to wake you up. These pictures want you to wake up. They're all telling you the same thing. You can either compromise and follow false teachers or you can overcome and stay faithful. That was the first, first contrast all the way back to the beginning of the book. You can take the lamb's mark or you can take the beast's mark. You can be seduced by the harlot and mirror her lifestyle or you can give yourself to the lamb and live like a bride. Do you wanna be a prostitute or a virgin bride? Those are the contrasts. You can lament the fall of Babylon or you can rejoice and worship the God who crushes Babylon. You can become bird food at the supper of God where you can feast with the king of kings. Humans like making things more complicated than they need to be. And the reason why we like doing that is because we're looking for an out or an excuse. We want to be the exception to the rule. Okay, there are two options except for this third one. And the third one always looks like what your flesh wants. Isn't that funny? But Revelation is clear. The Bible makes it clear. There are two teams, not 73 teams. There is one final end to history, not 126. 
And what that asks of us is to decide what you think and what you're going to do with that one final end of history. What team are you going to play for? Revelation 19, Jesus is coming back to planet Earth and he's coming soon. I don't know when he's coming, but we're closer today than we were yesterday. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll be closer tomorrow than you were today. So just by the law of of numbers, every day that you live, you're risking closer and closer and closer to the return of Jesus without making a decision about what you think about it. And I'm not just talking about making a decision about what you think about Jesus. I'm talking about making a decision about what you do about Jesus. Because there is a way to say, yeah, I mean, I believe him, I trust him. But you don't really believe him and you don't really trust him. Churches are filled with people who are convinced that if they think good about Jesus, then that translates to following Jesus. But it's, it doesn't, it doesn't. Even the demons believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but they're not stamped with the seal of the Lamb. So for those of you who have tried to live your own life thinking, I'm just gonna do whatever I wanna do and I'll just take my chances and when things get really tough, then I'll decide one day what I'm gonna do about it. You are playing a dangerous game with the end of history. There is a king coming back and there are only two teams to play for and if you're not on his, you're getting stamped with a different seal and judgment's coming your way. And for those of us who are following the Lamb and are part of his family, there is an expectation on you to keep being part of his family, to keep your robes clean, to not say, oh, Jesus, I love you, but what was that that you're selling, Babylon? I'll, I will have a little bit of that. I love you, but when I leave here this morning, I am gonna partake in some of that. That's not a thing in the Bible. That's called infidelity. You're either sold out to the lamb or you belong to this world. And so the expectation in beholding the amazing return of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 The expectation on us today is to walk away with the reality that you can't play for two teams. You cannot continue to live the way you've been living. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.